This is an ABC podcast. Hi, Mike Ladd with you for the History Lesson and the second program in our series based on the lives of World War II detainees in Loveday Camp in the South Australian Riverland. If truth is the first casualty of war, subtlety is the second. Australia's initial detention policies were crudely based on race and ethnicity, not political loyalty or personal history. I think the Australian authorities tended to regard national groups as homogeneous groups. So they would think of Japanese as being all in the same basket, Germans similarly, Italians, and so they weren't sensitive to the many differences that in fact existed. The Italians were taken into custody all around Australia, but mainly up in the cane fields in Queensland and over in the gold fields in Western Australia. And they were just rounded up in mass and taken away. Um, some of them didn't get to see their families before they left. One gentleman, he was at his wedding reception when he was taken into custody. For quite some time, I think, the Australian policy was a cruel one because it meant that in certain instances, people of quite different views or quite different cultural backgrounds were placed together in internment. Historians Peter Monteith and Rosemary Gower. Here at Loveday Camp, civilians who were classed as enemy aliens were detained from 1941 onwards. 70-year-old Japanese pearl divers who'd been in Australia since the 19th century were locked up. German Jews were imprisoned with Nazi sympathisers. Anarchist and communist Italians were interned with fascists, their sworn enemies. Which brings me to the tragic story of Francesco Fantin. And it is a tragedy in the Shakespearean sense of an impending doom the hero can't avoid. Ma cosa ho avuto saverti? <laughs> hey Francesco, you better watch out once these guys know which side you're on. Perché? The obligo un'etichetta. You have to belong to a faction. <laughs> you bet. Ask them. Thirty years ago, Teresa Crea wrote and directed Red Like the Devil. Set at Loveday Camp, it's a bilingual play about Francesco Fantin, and I produced an audio version for ABC Radio Drama. You've got to bend a little, like the trees in the wind, otherwise they'll break you. Make everybody laugh, huh? Times like you don't last long. I can't deny my beliefs. And here you treat your enemies as your friends. Si tratta di convinzioni. You know nothing about survival. The camp is full of men rotting inside. So who was Francesco Fantin? And how did he come to meet his fate here in Loveday Camp? Fantin biographer David Faber. He was born a frail midwinter's child on the 20th of January 1901 in the town of San Vito di Legazzano, which is in the Schio district, Schio being a rural industrial town. He was brought up by an egalitarian working class Catholic mother and a less influential working-class textile working father. And he 
became a teenage anarchist, anti-fascist paramilitary. I remember as though it were yesterday, that adolescence of mine, an infancy without games, growing up among the clash of arms in that little industrial city, the pain of seeing all the slaughter of that war. Then, the spring, the life which is ever renewing itself with a hymn to love, to liberty. But too short the time, too many those slow to understand this great idea of love. The wickedness, the ambition for dominion, the acts of violence against the poor people. Too late was it understood all the evil which fascism was doing. Francesco Fantin, Pensieri e Ricordi. His opposition to fascism was based on his mother's ethics, which were Catholic, but which translated into secular, socialistic, anarchist ethics. Fantin would have exercised with arms and he was involved in supplying explosives to worker defence in factories. After World War I, a violent political battle raged in Italy between Mussolini's fascists and various anti-fascist groups. In a coup d'etat, Mussolini became Prime Minister of Italy in 1922. Fantin could see there was no immediate future for resistance in, in Italy. Many of Fantin's friends emigrated to Australia at that time and he stayed because he was married, but then the marriage broke up. The story goes his wife left him for a fascist, which must have been doubly painful. He drank for about a year. In Francesco Fantin's home district, they'd known about Australia as a political destination for emigration since the 1890s. All of his friends were gone to Australia, so he followed them. He arrives in Melbourne, goes straight up to the cane fields and works there with his brother. He was widely known for his anti-fascist activities in the cane fields. There's oral tradition that suggests that he was by his best mate's side during the 1934 Ingham cane strike, which was a health and safety strike over Wiles disease, which was a fatal illness that was afflicting the cane cutters. Saranno mica quelli dello we had to strike. The boss wouldn't let us burn the cane. It was full of rat's piss. We were getting sick. Just don't bring your cane cutter politics in here. Did you bring the paper? As promised. Are we ready? I told you before. Read your paper somewhere else. You do it here, we are all involved. I'm not taking risks for you. You can always go outside if you don't like our company. Your bloody propaganda is going to get us all into trouble. The strike was successful and led to the practice of burning the cane. Initially, the cane owners opposed the practice because it lowered the sugar content, but with support from the medical fraternity, it was proved that fire killed the bacteria that came from rat's urine in the cane fields, 
and led to the fatal Wiles disease, when the cutters were scratched and infected. So that national tradition that we know of, of the cane being burnt, actually started with a health and safety strike in which Fantin and Italian Australians were very prominent. Fantin became known for his activism on behalf of workers and for raising funds for the Popular Front, the coalition of the left during the Spanish Civil War. Once military security got going in 1939-1940, he was recognised as an anarchist leader of a small following. A rabid fascist, he openly expressed to me his hatred of England and Englishmen. James McCarthy, Brisbane. Fanton is reported to have actively spread communist propaganda amongst the sugar workers in North Queensland. Intelligence officer, Cairns. From the inquiries made, I am satisfied that Fanton has no followers of anarchism in this division. Constable R.R. Kelly. A fascist, communist, anarchist, eh? Seems the authorities covered all bases for Fantin. The education level of Queensland police, whom the military relied on for local knowledge, was primary. They didn't have a secondary education, most of them. They didn't really understand politics, and they certainly didn't understand the politics of foreigners. And so a couple of police stations dreamt up the notion of the fascist communist enemy alien, a hybrid whereby they're all extremists, they're all foreigners, their ideas are all foreign, we can't tell the difference, we don't care. They're all disloyal, they're all anti-British. And this damned him. Fantin was arrested on the 14th of February 1942 and sent south on a train. Which the Queensland commissioner in charge described as full of the scum of the earth because they hadn't been able to wash for about four days on the train. He was then taken to Gaythorne near Brisbane, then on a train down to Love Day. Most of the prisoners that were in Loveday were not necessarily political, but there were a lot of fascists among the Italians and they were very brutal towards the Italian men who were anti-fascist. Fantin was an identified enemy so far as the fascists were concerned and the fascists were a minority who had the apolitical majority under the thumb, and they were a larger minority than the anti-fascists. Um, the anti-fascists were primarily from Queensland, and some 300 internees came into the camp from Western Australia, and that boosted the fascists.
Van Tin was now, courtesy of the Australian authorities, nestled in the bosom of his enemies, in almost as much danger as he would have been in Italy. There were a lot of ironies. There were men in the camp who'd lived here for many years and had families here, and they were often visited by their sons, and they'd be in Australian army uniforms. So there were a lot of people there that shouldn't have been there, but the hardest thing was the fact that they had the fascists in with the others and they were very brutal. Dr Fisciatelli was a medical businessman from up North Queensland way and he came out with a job lot of Italian medicos who were loyal to the regime. In the camp, he was allowed to be elected by the fascists as camp leader, so he was the preferred conduit for all information between the military authorities and the internees. Fenton overheard the doctor in charge saying, we've got to get rid of him, and he was very much afraid for his life, and he was right. Fantin had been half-strangled on one occasion. He'd been punched in the face on one occasion. His diary, Thoughts and Memories was a response to his sense of threat in that he started reviewing his whole life. So it's very evocative prose. In this, my life of roaming through the world in search of a piece of bread less bitter, of a little liberty, in these long months of my internment camp, in the evening hours when the sun disappears, when the earth veiled in a tenuous shadow, already dozes quiet and melancholy, I feel in my heart a great sadness. In these last twenty years, in these times of dictators and dictatorship, the human species, full of fevers, seems mad. All the world rings with the roar of ruinous butcheries. Everywhere, chaos in a stir seething without hope. It is only a little while since they emerged from the great bath of blood. The fascists were doing things like holding news readings at dinner time, where they would spin the news to say that, you know, the news is telling us that the fascists are winning, the Axis is winning, which until 1942 you could do and get away with because the war wasn't going so well for the Allies. Fantin assumed the leadership of the anti-fascists in the camp and they would go to these readings and contest the news. And eventually they organised a collection of money for the Sheepskin for Russia campaign, which was about Lady Jessie Street's war charity to provide the Russians with as much Australian wool for winter uniforms as they would need. At this time, this is in this fortnight, El Alamein is won, which is the first real Allied victory, and the Russians are about to go in for the kill at Stalingrad. And Fantin is saying the news is wonderful on all fronts. And he's also saying how much he loves the Australian working class. Legilor! It's a list! Ready. 
Non è per niente difficile, è una lista. A list of people sending money for sheepskins in Russia. Antifascisti. Froscioni. Too hot here for anarchists. Maybe we send them to Russia, eh? <laughs> Guess who is on the list? I don't know. Francesco Fantin, your friend. He has sent money from this camp. I don't know anything about it. Oh, is that so? This collection of monies enraged the fascists. They thought it was disloyal, un-Italian. And uh, they decided about four o'clock in the afternoon of the 16th of November 1942 to murder him. He knew about this. And he moved around the camp hoping to avoid attention. But unfortunately, unbeknownst to him, he was being tailed because it was a group of people who were after him, not just one single person. He'd been beaten up before and he knew that, that his life was in threat, so he went to the camp lieutenant and he told him and he pleaded to be moved to another camp. I don't believe what they believe. Is that so? I don't believe in this war. Well, you'd better believe it, mate. I have the freedom to choose. Right now, you don't even have the freedom to scratch yourself. Help me. Settle your own arguments. How can you say that? You put us here. You are responsible. Eventually, the National Security Service designated him as a case to be released. That was a fortnight before he was attacked, but he's bogged down in army bureaucracy. And they didn't do it, and as a result, they did get him. And he was hit on the back of the head as he was drinking from a tap, which anybody who's ever been in an Australian playground can tell you it was a vulnerable moment. And he was probably struck down by being hit at point-blank range by a thrown Jarrah skittle, some such wooden object. He was then taken to the regimental aid post in the camp where he was seen by the fascist leader in the camp, Dr Piscitelli, the guy who had probably commissioned the crime, who made excuses and pretended not to see things and to see others and so forth. And he didn't get seen to for six hours. By the time they decided to send him to the Barmra Hospital... It was too late and he died, but he could have been saved. And he died at Barmer at 10 in the evening. He died for his politics. A young man named Giordano Bruno Cassotti, he was charged with murder. The police worked out it was a political crime and assassination straight away. 
but they couldn't prove it because the uh, witnesses were intimidated because everyone knew that if you said anything about that, you were next. Unfortunately, the Crown prosecutor accepted a plea for manslaughter. Cassotti claimed that uh, Fantin had provoked him by insulting his mother, that there'd been some push and shove and that Fantin, who might have had a thin skull, had fallen backwards onto the tap stand. And the defendant was advised by his lawyer to plead guilty of manslaughter. And so the Crown Prosecutor thought, well, you won't go free with manslaughter. Rough justice, that's just what you get. So eventually Justice Richard sentenced Cassotti to two years hard labour and told him he was very lucky. He did the time at Adelaide Jail. In 1947, after he'd done his time, he was deported. Alarmingly, Cassotti got back into Western Australia in 1954. But that's another story. There was a lot of propaganda going on during that court case. It was a Menzies government policy. And Everett, one of the first things he'd done when he became Attorney General in late 41, was to have all cases reviewed case by case because you couldn't release people in a mass in the middle of a war with Italy. The public opinion would never have worn it. But what Everett did do was he spared the blushes of the army because the army could have been held up to disrepute on grounds of negligence. A very embarrassing death in custody. So it was more embarrassing to the army than to the Labor government. Everett was a win-the-war social democrat. He needed the army. He couldn't afford to have it embarrassed. All the men that died at the camp, Fenton's the only one we know that was murdered or died as a result of assault, they were all buried at the Barmer Cemetery. Subsequently, his bones were exhumed and they were deposited in the Italian ossuary at Murchison in Victoria. He was a very genuine man, he was a very intelligent man. He wasn't an educated man, he'd only had a few years at school, but he was a very sincere man and he was a very good worker. Fantin was one of those people who thought, like Martin Luther King, that if you stop caring about the things that matter, you're already dead, you're sold dead. There's not much point after that. He wasn't a martyr. He was not seeking death at the hands of his enemies. He was willing to bear witness to the truth in the face of death, which is different. Fantin should never have been interned in the first place. I think it's a case that's very pertinent to today of security legislation gone mad. When the news came through to Brigadier Simpson, the Chief of the Security Service under Evatt, the Attorney General, that Fantin had been killed, he was highly embarrassed and it disturbed him. And later on, when he became a federal court judge, he said that he thought the Fantin case was a case of murder, pure and simple. To those outside, let them know that in this internment camp there are living friends, 
and workmen who make common cause with them. Companions who have years of struggle for liberty, for justice, who have the same goal and are cheered by their victories. And pensively, they continue to talk of all the peoples who in pain suffer the fascist tyranny. And before the bitter reality of every day, before this deep darkness, let us try to stand up for the light and for the truth. 1942. Frank Fantin. Ironically, Fantin's possessions, including his memoir entitled Pensieri e Ricordi, Thoughts and Memories, went up in smoke when a sugarcane burn-off, a practice he'd helped establish, got out of control and burnt down his hut. After his death, all his effects had been sent back to Queensland and stored in the hut. Luckily, an intelligence officer at Loveday had translated Fantine's words, and we still have that translation, though the original in Italian is lost. And so ends the tragic tale of Francesco Fantin, part two of the Love Day trilogy here on the History Listen. Readings from Fantin's memoir were by Mark Saturno. Sound engineering and original music was by Tom Henry, and production was by me, Mike Ladd. Join me next time for the moving story of Japanese internee Miyakatsu Koike, or download the whole series now wherever you get your podcasts. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.